I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. That is important, the dignity of all humanity. And in the immediate wake of the horrific 9-11 attacks, Congress passed the Authorization for the Use of Military Force Act, or AUMF. In the nearly 18 years since then, what has been the actual effect? The stated goal, as I understood it, was to stop terrorism, at least in Afghanistan, where the attackers had been based. The point to the AUMF was to get around a constitutionally required congressional declaration of war to fight the bad guys. We needed to make America safer, quickly and effectively. Aside from what many would consider acts of terror in the United States, racist, anti-Semitic attacks, school attacks, church attacks, and random shopping mall shootings and the like, the mainland has not seen acts of terror committed by foreign fighters since then. Does that not mean it's working? And what is it, anyway, with the security of the United States tied to the stability of the world when our forces train others in sites spanning the globe, even if done in secret, hidden from the view of the American people, Surely it must be useful to do what the U.S. military calls building partner capacity. So what if you and I are kept in the dark about this vast constellation of global training exercises, operations, facilities, and schools? Well, as we all know, that which is done in secret almost always comes back to bite us. Could it be that what is being done in secret with our tax dollars, sometimes helping dictators crack down brutally on internal dissidents in the name of our undefined war on terror, is actually having the effect of boosting the resolve and recruiting terrorists? What are we doing and where are we doing it? How many foreign soldiers, police and others are we euphemistically training? Yemen is just one of the places where our forces are at work. How well is that working out for our interests? As our guest today asks, how often in the past 17 years has Congress or the American public debated the expansion of the war on terror to such a staggering range of places? Perhaps it would be a good idea. Stephanie Savell, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Stephanie Savell is a Tom Dispatch regular co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. Well, that's a very prestigious school, I must say, impossible to get into. Anyway, we'll leave that as it is. An anthropologist, she con- conducts research on security and activism in the U.S. and in Brazil. She co-authored The Civic Imagination, Making a Difference in American Political Life. Her new article on Tom Dispatch is called Mapping the American War on Terror. 
And again, thanks for being with us. In in your work for the Costs of War Project, you set out to create a map of all the places in the world where the U.S. is still fighting this global war on terrorism. How we fight a war on an ism, I don't understand. Perhaps the spark for this research was the 2017 surprise killing of four American soldiers in Niger, in formerly French West Africa. The American public and all of Congress was shocked. No one knew they were there. It was all a secret. What were the goals and purpose of your mapping project? In what ways did it become, as you said, a research odyssey? And was it related to the uh, 2017 killing of those four in Niger? Right. So we actually began this project uh, before that incident in Niger that you mentioned. Um, we, we, you know, part of the goal of the Cost of War project is to show uh, the hidden and unacknowledged costs of the, the U.S. war on terrorism. So we do things like um, we issue reports on, you know, how much the dollar figure of how much the war has cost, the human toll, how many lives have been lost. And this was an idea for a new project that we had that was um, back in 2017, but before the Niger incident. And we thought we would just kind of create a visual and show the American public these are all the places where the U.S. is engaged in this war on terrorism, which uh, not only has not ended, as many people uh, seem to think, but it is still really going strong. And, and when I say, when we talk about the war on terrorism, so this, this name has come from, um, you know, George W. Bush in, the, in, around, in 2001, he invaded Afghanistan in response to the 9-11 uh, attacks. And um, and he called it the global war on terror. And since that time, the um, the name of this war has changed under subsequent administrations. Obama didn't want to call it that, but it's that same war that we're talking about now that started in Afghanistan, went to Iraq, and then, as we show, is spread all around the world. So when we first started this mapping project, um, I hadn't, you know, I didn't know about Niger. I saw it like probably others who would think about this, um, that, that I, it would show a handful of countries. So okay. I thought, um, you know, obviously Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Syria, uh, and then maybe a few other lesser-known countries that, that some of us who know about, about these kinds of things would know about, like the Philippines and Somalia. Um, and then, of course, uh, the Niger incident happened. Four American soldiers were killed there on a, on a mission that, as you say, um, even members of Congress knew nothing about. Um, and, and that gave Americans kind of an inkling of this vast global footprint that I'm going to talk about today. Wow, yeah, it, it is a, it's a surprising. And so you didn't expect to see so many places. And since this is radio and podcast, we are unable to show the map. It's an impressive map. How many countries and what percent of the nations on the planet are we talking about? Describe the map, if you would, please. Yes, it's 80 countries, and that is 40% of countries in the world. So it's quite a staggering number of places. Um, the map shows a, um, it's published in the uh, the. January, February issue of the Smithsonian Magazine. Yes. Um, and so they, they had a lovely graphic design team. They did a great job with kind of showing this map um, with all the countries laid out. And then each of them has, a, you know, an icon. So we, 
we divided the the 80 countries into different categories. So the the highest intensity places um, are the places where the U.S. is dropping uh, air and drone strikes against militant targets, and that's happening in seven countries, um, including uh, Yemen, uh, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Iraq, places like that that we know about. Um, And then there are uh, places where we are engaged. Oh, sorry, I said Saudi Arabia, but I was looking at the the combat categories, not air air and drone. Oh, yeah, wondering not air drone strikes in Saudi Arabia. But anyway, uh, combat is happening in Saudi Arabia. So this yes. was an, this is kind of another high intensity category um, where the American public isn't aware. It's places like um, you know Niger, uh, but also places like Cameroon and Mali um, and and Libya and Tunisia, places where. You know, we wouldn't necessarily think uh, that U.S. boots are on the ground engaging in direct mm. combat against militant targets. Um, and then if you kind of zoom out a little bit, there are the, the you know, less intense elements of this, uh, what we call this global war, um, but, but important nonetheless. So we document uh, 26 countries in which the U.S. military is engaged in joint military exercises with local forces explicitly aimed at counterterrorism. Not all of them are, but these ones were ones we were able to document as such. Uh, and then 40 countries that are home to military bases uh, that are being used in counterterrorism. Again, there are many, many more bases, U.S. military right. bases in the world. These are the ones we were able to document clearly as being used in the counterterror war. And then the biggest category is um, places where we're doing what we call training and assistance of local security forces mm-hmm. um, in counterterrorism, and that's happening in 65 countries. Wow, 65 countries, training and assistance. That's pretty uh, <laughs> pretty open-ended. And it is amazing. I mean, I wonder how many Americans realize where there are actual boots on the ground, as if, you know, as in Niger that, that you describe there. And it must have been interesting doing the research. I, I can't help but think that there might have been forces who might not have wanted this information to get out there. Well, what's so interesting about that is, is exactly that. I mean, this is the, this, you know, you mentioned the research odyssey. In part, what was so surprising about this research is that there wasn't kind of a, an easily accessible way to get this information. Um, so you go to, you know, any number of government websites and you're not going to find this information on there. Um, and in fact, that particular category, the U.S. boots on the ground uh, engaging in combat, is one about which the, the military is particularly secretive. Um, all of this is kind of in the name of security, that, that this information is not public. Um, but what we had to do was we really had to rely on the work of, um, you know, credible uh, investigative journalists and journalism in order to document that combat category. So what in many places is officially, you know, a train, advise, and assist mission, um, as in as we saw in Niger, uh, in actuality, it is a, um, a situation in which U.S. troops are engaged in combat in ways that, um, you know, most Americans really aren't aware. You know, we saw we saw that with, uh, you know, the 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 outcry in response to the incident in, in Niger. And this is happening, you know, surprise, surprise, not just in Niger, but in, you know, in many other places as well. Uh, fake news, I'm sure that's what Trump would call it. 
because he doesn't doesn't like it. It doesn't fit. Nobody, he doesn't want to know that. I remember him actually recently talking about countries you never even heard of. Well, maybe he never heard of. (laughs) Well, some of us have. Yes, most of us, I think, have. And I'm reminded, uh, of, of course, I have a few years under my belt. The line between assistance and combat is, as you say, quite blurry. President Nixon called it Vietnamization of the war. That, you know, they were going to do the fighting, not us. But the truth was, what was painted as assistance from Americans was something else to the people in the field. Uh, Might similar arrangements be in effect today? Are there places in Africa which might be examples? Tell us about what you found there with regard to this blurry military assistance. Yeah, so Africa in particular, I mean, visually, as you said, we're on the radio, so you can't see the map, but visually that, um, the map really does, outside the Middle East, it focuses on the region of Africa, um, which may come as some surprise to to Americans. And one of the articles that we really relied on uh, for this topic um, was a great political article. And they revealed, it was an article, I noted this down, on the 3rd of July of 2018 um, by Wesley Morgan. And, and they, they did some really fantastic investigative work, which revealed that what happens, American special operations, they operate under a legal authority that's known as Section 127E. Ooh. And what they do is they plan and control direct action missions and raids on terrorist targets, like on terrorist compounds. Actually, the group that was killed in Niger, that's what they were doing there. Um, they were on the border. They were headed for a compound, a militant compound in Mali, and they were right on the border um, when they were killed. And um, and so they they basically act with African forces acting as their proxies, mm-hmm. but actually under their command. So uh-huh. the U.S. troops are the ones that are in charge of those missions. Um, and uh, and then the political article, article documents that the, that's happening in eight countries that they were able to document this this what they call the surrogate program. So. Uh, those are Kenya, Tunisia, Cameroon, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Somalia, and Libya. Interesting. It does seem that Africa is really a growth area in many, many ways. China is investing heavily in Africa to get resources out. And, you know, I know President uh, Trump called it what he called it. And I suppose since he said it, I can say it too. But I hate to. He called, you know, all those African countries shitholes. So instead of uh, investing in them, you know, and helping to build up their economy, we're hiding behind uh, and training these these forces that are, you know, they do it for pay, obviously. You know, it's not out of love of country. I suppose it might be sometimes. But the people on the ground, you know, how do they see it? That's, you know, and how is it helping our long-run goal of making the world safer? If you just tuned in, Bert, well, Bert Cohen here, we are... Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest today is Stephanie Savell, who has written an article called Mapping the War on Terror. Go ahead, Stephanie. Yeah, you may have seen, there's been a little bit of recent uh, press on um, terrorism in Africa, and actually some recent research has just come out. I forget what group it was now, but... Um, they they just came out, it just came out showing that there are far more 
extremist groups in Africa than there were in the past, than there were before 9-11, and specifically than there were before the U.S. started taking all these actions, you know, these military actions on the continent. Um, what happens, research has shown, is that, you know, when you treat terrorism as a, as a problem to which the military is a solution, when it's treated as a war problem, as the U.S. has done, um, what you really do is you, you end up fueling extremist uh, extremism and you fuel uh, extremist violence. So you, you basically ca- cause a lot of people to resent America. Um, that helps extremist groups uh, recruit more followers. It creates more extremist groups. Um, a lot of the response to the, these, this, you know, American bombing and the, this American militarism oh, yeah. uh, is is more violence. And so there, there really is kind of you can see very clearly in Africa the pattern of, you know, the U.S. going in looking for terrorists, um, actually creating the problem sure. that it is seeking to, uh, in in name, seeking to address. Well, as they say. If all you have is a hammer, you're going to see nails everywhere. And it doesn't, it, it just clearly, I mean, as you, as you say, your research showed that it's exacerbating the problem and making it worse. That's you, right. Your, your research was able to estimate the cost to the American taxpayer, aside from blood uh, and, you know, our respect in the world. I wonder if you would share what you know about the actual taxpayer cost with us. Yes, so this was another piece of research um, that was done by a Boston University professor named Nita Crawford. Um, She does this for the Cost of War Project, and it's an annual update that we do every year. Uh, And what she has calculated is that since 2001, the U.S. has spent or is obligated to spend $5.9 trillion dollars um, that is through fiscal year 2019, so kind of including the estimate for this fiscal year. And um, and when I say obligated, so it includes all the costs that we've spent so far, and then it includes a portion of the of of that 5.9 trillion is the money that we are committed to spending on care for the vets of these post 9/11 wars through the rest of their lifetimes. Um, and she does she does what she calls a reasonable and conservative estimate mm-hmm. for, for those kinds of figures. So $5.9 trillion, I mean, I could say $5.9 billion and it would be huge. You yes. know, $5.9 trillion, we can't even kind of grasp how large that sum is. I can't even grasp a billion. A, a billion is no. a thousand million and a trillion is a thousand billion? What? That's like, what? I cannot... Uh, it doesn't no. seem like the best expenditure of money in my estimation, but that's... Well, the, you know, and one part of our research shows, too, that, you know, of course we haven't kind of paid for this out of pocket. It's really been out of sight, out of mind for, for Americans in a lot of ways. Well, how we've done it is put a lot of it on a credit card, basically, and, you know, spent, we've, we've paid for this war through borrowing um, that, you know, we, we've shown that if you stopped paying for this war right now... Mm. Uh, in the next 40 years or so, we're going to owe $8 trillion just in interest, interest alone. That's over and above the $5.9 trillion I've been talking about. So um, this is this war debt is changing our country now and, and certainly for, for generations to come. Hmm. And you and I both have children, and it's uh, I hate to think about what That's we're right. doing to them. I know. 
Well, Congress did something truly extraordinary recently. The House of Representatives voted to end U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. And the Senate has passed legislation requiring Congress to vote on the same issue sometime in the coming months. And I will say, I think the fact that there has been an uproar about U.S. support for the, you know, basically genocidal war in Yemen that the Saudis are doing, it makes a difference. They wouldn't be doing that if they hadn't heard from the people out on the streets. American military assistance to Saudi Arabia in its war on Yemen was virtually unknown until recently. In fact, U.S. Central Command actually said it does not conduct exercises with members of the Saudi-led coalition to prepare for combat operations in Yemen, end of quote from the Central Command. That turned out, and this is from your article, to not exactly be true. What did your research find about American activities, training, or whatever that may serve the needs of the Saudi government but have the effect of exacerbating the anger and fanning the flames of rage, not just in Yemen but in the region, uh, against the U.S.? Yeah. Um, So what we were able to document in Yemen was, um, you know, in addition to the the kind of well-known fact that we are aiding and assisting in these drone strikes against the the Houthi rebels, is that we are um, that we've engaged in in combat. So um, this that what we were able to document happened in 2017, um, and that's what this map shows. Actually, is 2017 and 2018. There are allegations that that you know this so-called. Um, you know, assistance that we're giving the Saudi government that we that there have been American uh, boots on the ground in 2018, wow. but that's again, that's not something that the government is admitting to. So I think, you know, I think it it goes back to this question of you know lack of transparency uh, around these activities, um, the fact that this really is you know the, the war on terrorism is a shadow war that the government is waging about which the American public just does not know enough information. And I, I remember, again, showing my age, the secret war in Cambodia. It was secret to Americans, but it sure as heck wasn't secret to the people in Cambodia. You know, so wow, the, exactly. the, the, the people in Yemen, I mean, they know that the bombs, the equipment, the fueling is by the U.S. And I, I just, Yeah, and again, this goes back to what we were talking about before and, and the fact that, you know, American militarism is really kind of fueling the flames of, um, recruitment to extremist groups and, uh, and and extremist violence. And before, with the end of the show, we're going to talk about you know other options other than you know military answers to these political questions. As you write, in general, the American public has largely ignored these post eleven post nine eleven wars and their costs. These shadow wars. Uh, why is it now time to pay attention? And again. Shadow war. What what does that mean? Well, when I say shadow war, it really it's drawing on something that you know, in, investigative journalists have have used to describe what's going on. I'm thinking in particular uh, of a great a journalist named Nick Terse, who has covered a lot oh, yes. of this um, activity in Africa. And you know, and and again, this is this shadow war. It's it's all this kind of combat and activity on the ground. Uh, that is really going unreported, unacknowledged uh-huh. by the American public. Um, it's something that, you know, um, the American public uh, 
kind of deserves to know about and weigh in on through Congress, um, which has a right and a responsibility yes. to declare war. But in the case of the war on terrorism, has kind of abdicated that right and responsibility um, with this um, AUMF that you mentioned at the beginning, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, which was something that was enacted right after 9-11, right. kind of in the midst of that chaos and fear that many people felt at the time, and that has not been, um, you know, revisited or repealed since then, although there is movement in Congress now. Um, Representative Barbara Lee from California uh-huh. has recently introduced an, uh, yet a, a new bill to kind of um, uh, revisit to repeal that AUMF. Uh, and if that happens, then there will be a lot of, um, a lot of more debate around this topic than there has been uh, in all these 17 years that we've been waging this war. Interesting, it's been going on in the shadows, outside of our view, and it does seem that it was one of the things that our government learned from Vietnam was to keep secrets as much as possible. So you know, now people don't foreign policy. You know, here we are in the early stages of the 2020 elections, and foreign policy is not exactly on the front burner because I have to believe. You know, we're not losing that many of our young men and women, and it's kept out of the headlines. Do you sense that, with, with well, the four, I mean, it's like ancient history now, the four who were killed in Niger. Uh, but do you sense a, a change that the people are starting to, I mean, since our guys aren't dying, you know, since there haven't been uh, terrorist attacks aside from the, uh, you know, local terrorists, is public opinion starting to care about this, do you think? Well, it's a funny thing, but I think the media, at least if the, the, the kind of mainstream media is any judge of what the public is caring about, and they are. Um, the, the media is starting to pay attention to this question of, you know, of the war on terrorism a little bit more recently, for sure. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that um, President Trump is talking about withdrawing forces from Syria and uh, brokering a peace with the Taliban in Afghanistan and mm-hmm. withdrawing forces from Afghanistan. So, um, you know, the media definitely, you know, focuses on all things Trump. And so um, <laughs> I think kind of his claims to this effect um, have drawn attention to this recently. Um, I've I've spoken on uh, BBC World News about this map um, and uh, and some other kind of did a feature. So some other kind of big media groups have been paying attention. And I think the the point really is in the context of those discussions that you know, well, even if we do withdraw from Syria and Afghanistan, um, what about these other seventy eight countries in which we're waging this war? And shouldn't we talk about? this kind of strategy as a whole and and look at the kind of the the vast scope of our activities in the name of the war on terrorism and and assess those comprehensively instead of just looking at this piecemeal and taking those big name countries like Afghanistan and Syria and then forgetting about yeah. uh, all the rest. Well, the founders of this country intended Congress to make to be the power to decide war, but they've obviously gotten around that with the AUMF. You know, and in a war, it's crucial to keep secrets, military secrets. We've seen, you know, through the development of the atomic bomb and, you know, figuring out uh, uh, coding 
secret codes and stuff like that. It's We can't let the other side know what we're doing. What do you say to those who argue that much of this stuff should be kept secret? Again, I think that, you know, the American public, there's certainly, that that's certainly true to a certain degree. I, you know, that there must be some information that, that needs to be classified. But I really think what we're seeing is um, a, a vast over-classification of some of this information. So um, where the Constitution gives the American people the right to weigh in on a lot of these questions, um, the, the U.S. government and the military is kind of classifying things far too much and far too broadly, um, and there needs to be a different a different balance than there currently is now. We've we've said the same thing in our work uh, on the budget because more and more information about the costs of the war on terrorism is becoming classified or hidden. Um, they're not publishing numbers of troops in Afghanistan and Iraq anymore. All kinds of, of information that, that's really kind of disappearing from public view. Um, under the current administration, and and that is um, just very counter to um, the democratic processes that um, that this country was was founded on. I wish you had the quote with me from uh, John Kennedy, who was no uh, dove. He certainly was hawkish as well, but he was very much against uh, overuse of secrecy and keeping secrets from the American people. You know that there that was the picture we as kids were given of the old Soviet Union. We're open. They're they're the bad guys. That they they have all these secrets and don't let the uh, let their people know. What about drones? I mean, there's you know Obama uh, was very resistant to having boots on the ground where American soldiers are in harm's way, but drones have come in real handy in this regard. Um, your research discovered some surprises about places where we actually do have boots on the ground, and then I don't know how many countries where the, the drones are at work, and, you know, they're, they're talk about instruments of terror. Uh, and actually, I just read today, let me see if I can find it. Oh, yes, Donald Trump uh, signed an executive order reducing the number of civilian deaths from drones that the government must report. Trump signed the order March 6, revoking an Obama-era requirement for the Director of National Intelligence to release an annual report on the number of deaths resulting from U.S. operations in non-combat areas around the world. Such areas include parts of Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan. Obama introduced the measure in 2016 as he faced pressure to be more transparent about the increased use of drones. Well, yet again, if if it has the name Obama on it, I guess uh, Trump must be against it. But what do you think about the effects of, of that? And, and, and there's like increasing. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's just awful. There, there, you know, research has shown, too, that, you know, when you when you can show the numbers of civilians who are killed um, as a kind of side effect of these kinds of activities, yeah, um, that 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 is a, an important mechanism for people to hold governments accountable for these acts of war. So um, when those numbers start disappearing from view as well, um, that's just a horrible thing for, you know, for human rights and, and for for the, the ability of the American public to hold the government accountable. Um, so that really is a, a horrible development that, that has just happened, as you note. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, this idea of using drones and drone mm-hmm. strikes instead of American boots on the ground um, is precisely a mechanism to, you know, reduce 
the chances of American soldiers being harmed or killed in these strikes. Um, and what that does is it kind of, if you can picture a, you know, a bird's eye view, it zooms everything out, right? And then it increases the likelihood that there are going to be civilians targeted and uh, not targeted, but, but killed as a side effect of the militants targeted um, from, from the sky. So, uh, so the, the policy that, you know, reduces harm against Americans is all very well and good for Americans, but it's really important to think about what's happening on the other side of that, uh, of, of that bomb and the fact that there are, you know, it really vastly increases the number of civilians that can be killed from these, these kinds of things, which is a really, a real tragedy of all this. Um, and I think in general, the American public, you know, it, it's, it's very, you know, very important to think about American soldiers and lives lost and, and, you know, our veterans, our soldiers are very brave and, Sure. And and all the rest of it, but I think a lot of times the the kind of the other the people who are not Americans um, really recede from view. And if we have a hard time getting, you know, media attention to our findings about the cost of the war on terrorism, the hardest thing of all is to get the media to pay attention to uh, anything, any report of ours that has to do with the cost of this war for mm-hmm. people on the ground, um, you know, in Afghanistan, in Yemen in all of these different places. Um, it's just not something that yeah. uh, it seems the media has judged the, the American public ha- cares to know much about. And that, that really is a great, great, sad tragedy. Um, so uh, I, I just hate to think about all those, those horrible deaths. And, um, you know, the, the, when you mentioned combat, so um, a lot of the times these are, small-scale operations. These are um, American special forces um, that are going in for these targeted missions. And again, this is not something we know much about. Obviously, this is another mechanism for um, reducing large-scale damage to American troops. but but again, those that's happening in fourteen different countries. So even that, even though we are doing these, uh, having this this drone strike policy, um, there are still are many situations in which American soldiers are uh, in harm's way. Um, and and you know, I've had people from the military say, you know, we really need to think about is it is it worth putting these lives at risk for whatever goal it is that we have right. in in fighting the war on terror in Cameroon, for example. Um, are we keeping Americans safer? Are we reducing violence against civilians uh, in the U.S., in Cameroon, or elsewhere through uh, through these kinds of actions? And we've, we've all, well, at least I've heard reports of, you know, wedding parties being targeted, oops, by mistake, and killing a lot of people. That is going to recruit people for the other side. And I'm reminded of, you know, John McCain, who no, you know, liberal dove, he saying how he was against the use of torture because it gets back to our guys. You know, it's just a dumb policy that, uh, you know, maybe in the short term, oh, well, it's collateral damage. The all these innocent civilian killed. But 
it just ends up, of course, recruiting more people and, you know, worsening our, our national security. It seems fairly clear. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Stephanie Savell, who is co-director of the Costs of War Project and uh, has written an article titled Mapping the American War on Terror. That map appeared in Smithsonian Magazine, and uh, we can't show it on the air, but it's impressive how far out it spreads. Um, You say that another striking finding in our research was just how many countries there were in all which the U.S. trains and or assists local security forces in counterterrorism, end of quote. What does that really look like on the ground? What is countering violent extremism, really? Is there a definition of that? So this is happening in 65 countries, 65 of the 80 total that are on the map. Um, And a lot of the information that we found about this category, training and assistance, we found from from research, from information that is publicly available, actually. These are State Department reports called the Country Reports on Terrorism, and they do them um, every year. They're annual updates uh, intended to update Congress on the state of terrorism in the world and uh, and what the U.S., uh, you know, what, what different countries' governments are doing to address it. And um, sometimes... Uh, they mention in those reports the ways that the U.S. is partnering with those governments to um, to, to counterterrorism. Um, so this to- this ranges from um, you know, and and this and here I'm talking about some activities that are not being done by the military. So the military will do kind of tactical training and and strategic training on how to you know raid a militant compound or whatever it is. And what the State Department does um, is a a whole other set of activities. They might do some kind of technical trainings as well, um, but they might focus on a different set of of security agents like uh, Border Patrol agents, for example, um, in Argentina uh, at the tri-border region between uh, Brazil Argentina and Paraguay, there's um, there's a vast marketplace there where uh, the U.S. believes that uh, ISIS is, or other terrorists are laundering money. And so the um, U.S. Border Patrol goes in and, and does trainings for Argentine, uh, their Argentine counterparts on, you know, money laundering and we're donating uh, money laundering or, um, inspection equipment and things like that. Um, there and then uh, in other places we're donating other kinds of, you know, x-ray vehicle detection equipment and we're doing trainings around that. Um, and then in, uh, and then we're doing kind of this vast um, set of countering violent extremism programs. And this mm. is really a kind of a soft power approach. So we work with uh, different countries, governments who are doing things like, um, you know, education and, uh, um, you know, kind of more, it's most awareness building, more like education around, uh, you know, terrorism and, and trying to prevent it from its roots. Well, yeah, I, I do wonder about that. And, you know, uh, with, like, for example, you were describing that area of Argentina where U.S. Border Patrol agents uh, found themselves rather distant from the actual American border, uh, allegedly to crack down on money laundering by terrorist groups. As you say, to many Americans, all this may sound relatively innocuous, like 
little more than generous neighborly help with policing or a sensibly self-interested fighting them over there before they get here set of policies. Makes kind of sense. What's wrong with that belief? Well, A, it's not effective. Um, so, again, you know, we've we've seen that in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. You go in and, and try to, you know, uh, fight, prevent it over there before it gets here, but instead right. you kind of create all these extra, all these, you know, side effects of, of this kind of militaristic approach. Um, you, um, you kind of don't, don't address the roots of the, the grievances that recruit p- people to these extremist groups in the first place. Um, and, and then it's not harmless either. So uh, what happens is in a lot of places um, that we're, the training, the, the so-called training and assistance that we're doing for countries' security forces is actually going to serve um, the interests of author- authoritarian governments it's, um, uh-huh. that are yeah. using the training that we're providing to crack down on internal dissidents and political opposition forces. Um, and that's not even something that uh, the State Department's the, the State Department reports try to hide. It's, they they kind of freely admit to the fact that um, you know in in Djibouti, for example, right. um, the and I'm quoting the State Department reports: the government continued to use terrorism legislation to suppress criticism by detaining and prosecuting opposition figures and other activists. Uh, so mm-hmm. the um, you know, this and Djibouti is a, is a long-standing partner of the U.S. in in Africa. It's home to the largest uh, U.S. military base in Africa, uh, Camp Lemonnier, um, and and has been a really important base in our counterterrorism efforts. So um, that's what happens is is then you know that counterterrorism becomes the latest framework for these kinds of governments to to kind of crack down and and um, you know administer this authoritarian rule. Mm. Which doesn't, it, it, I can't see it as being an American interest, but we do it in, as you say, Djibouti, the Philippines, where there's Duterte, incredibly murderous uh, dictator there, Nigeria. And I recall over the past oh, 60, 70 years or so, there's sort of a history of tension to varying degrees between the military and the CIA on one side and State Department on the other. Oftentimes, the State Department at least tries to be a little bit more uh, sensible. But, of course, that varies tremendously with who's ever heading up the State Department. What, what is the situation with that now? I mean, that, that quote you read from the State Department seemed like they had a little bit of concern about some of our policies. Yeah, I mean, it would seem so from from that, uh, from that quote and, and others like it in those country reports on terrorism. I don't really know, but what I do know is that the um, in a lot of places the the military has U.S. military has taken an increasingly prominent role in kind of diplomatic relations. So, for example, um, we had an expert, Catherine Bestiman, on Somalia, uh, who came to Brown recently on a panel that I organized, and she was talking about how um, you know all of the ways in which the U.S. Um, typically has a, a footprint in a foreign country um, through its embassy and USAID and, and things like that, yeah. have all been kind of drawn down in favor of uh, the increasingly large footprint of the U.S. 
military. And that in Somalia is a special case because we really have been uh, targeting al-Shabaab militants there in a particularly focused and intense way. Um, but still, the U.S. military ends up assuming this role of the kind of, you know, diplomatic relationship building between the U.S. and the Somali government. Um, and that really comes with a whole set of problems, this kind of militarization of uh, of American diplomacy. Wow, that's not a very pretty picture. <laughs> uh, we, You know, diplomacy seems to be a, a good thing, I would think. And there are sometimes, I'm just, you know, there was the uh, 2016 Summer Olympics in Brazil. Um, as your article says that American law enforcement entities, whatever that is, train security forces in Brazil to monitor terrorist threats in advance of the 2016 Summer Olympics, where there are a lot of people. Was that sort of an okay version of, of what we're talking about here? Is it something useful? Or even was that even, you know, of concern, do you think? It, it, Right, it would seem fairly innocuous, um, but the problem, again, is that we go in kind of looking for terrorism, and then we get embroiled in these political situations that are far more complex than we realized, uh, I think, at the uh -huh. beginning. And so uh, in Brazil, it's a case that I know well because I've done a lot of research there, um, you know, A, this uh, training uh, that was supposedly in advance of the has continued, so uh, it's, it's a, a, a relationship that that continues beyond the games, and and you know we're still doing kind of a terrorism related training there. Um, and B, the government of Brazil is one that you know there's no there there haven't been a lot of so called uh, terrorist groups there, but they're the they're very um, active. Uh, in policing the drug gangs that they have in Brazil, sure. and uh, and very the police force there is very violent. There are thousands of people of civilians killed by the police every year in just uh, Rio de Janeiro, which is where I've done a lot of my research. And so, and and now, what's fascinating is uh, to fascinating and horrifying um, is that I've been hearing from people in Brazil that that um, the the new President Bolsonaro and yes. um, the new governor of Rio, they're using the, the framework of terrorism to talk about the ways that the police are acting against these drug gangs. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're starting mm -hmm. to call these gangs terrorists. Um, and then that, that kind of brings with it a, this whole kind of justification for, you know, a real militarization of policing, which... Uh, if it wasn't, you know, it was there before, but now it's just happening in an increasingly intensified way, and the police police violence is just kind of skyrocketing. Um, it, what was already high is getting even higher. Mm -hmm. So again, there's this this the framework of counterterrorism is can be really dangerous if it's um, it, if it's in the wrong hands. Boy, I would think so. And Brazil, of course, is a very large area, and you know, there's a lot of. Uh, potential exploitation of indigenous people and of, uh, you know, natural resources there. And I would think that that, that the policy of, of cracking down more and more police violence, guess what that's going to spark? You know, I just don't see any other way that, that you know, it's not going to make people gather together and organize to fight it. And, of course, the term terrorist, you know, one person's terrorist has been another person's freedom fighter. We've seen that for many, many decades. 
and it's going on uh, around the world. Um, right. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive is the name of the show. It's a group effort, folks. Our guest today is Stephanie Savell, who is with Costs of War Project. We're talking about uh, mapping the American war on terror, how expansive it is, how secret it is from we the people, and if it's working. Um and interfering in domestic politics, supporting right-wing dictatorships, providing aid to human rights abusers and repressive policies. I, is, how can that not boost resistance and, and build terrorism? I, I just I don't see how it's yeah. going to work. Well, you said it. Yep, I think that's exactly right. <laughs> well, well uh, we want to be uh, uh, safe. We want to fight terrorism somehow. And America has what eight hundred military bases spanning the globe. Uh, I think I think it's fair to call us an empire. I don't know. Some people don't think so, but I I think it's pretty fair. What you know, if we want to not have terrorist attacks, I mean, we saw what happened uh, in in uh, in Iraq. ISIS didn't exist before it was created. Uh, it, by uh, trying to find somebody to justify why we were fighting in Iraq, and they they pinned it on on uh, I can't remember the guy's name and said he was a big leader, and so of course he became a big leader and attracted a lot of support in Iraq, and we have a tendency to keep doing that over and over again. Um, so what what is realistic? What can be done? You know, we can't just withdraw. We have these bases all over the world. We are a participant in the world very much so. What what do you think? I mean, Hillary Clinton called for uh, humanitarian intervention in the past. I I think that's yet another way of keeping things in the shadows. But what what can be done realistically, do you think? And, you know, really realistically, we're not just going to be a pacifist nation all of a sudden. Yeah, well, we've, we've published research on our, site, on our site that has taken a historical look at um, at terrorism throughout the world and how different countries have um, have dealt with it more or less effectively. Um, one thing that it shows conclusively is that the military, the military method is not an effective method. Um, so we're seeing that play out today, but historically we've seen that play out before. Um, policing uh, is has has been effective in some cases. Um, that comes with its own set of problems. I alluded to you know to some of that when I talked about Brazil. Um, but then there's also the idea that you know, kind of addressing the the grievances that underlie the um, recruitment to these extremist groups, um, thinking about those in a really long-term, sustainable way um, is really the only way of, of kind of dealing with uh, the, the problem of terrorism. It's not, um, it's not kind of these groups of people, these groups of evil people in the world who are, you know, perpetrating these things. It's, it's these groups that are able to, to use kind of widespread poverty and political disenfranchisement to um, to recruit followers and to to kind of garner all these very strong and often violent feelings of anger and um, exclusion and and things like that. So um, it really is by by dealing with those things in a substantive way um, that that terrorism dwindles. And you know, of course, that's not there's no easy there's no easy answer for how to do that. But it's certainly something that that we need to strive for. 
And I, I would think, as with so many you know, social and political challenges, doing it not from the top down, but by listening to people. You know, in Africa, yeah, there's a lot of poverty and, and hunger. And by working with the people, having it not come from top down, from the, oh, generous, uh, you know, white saviors coming in and telling them what to do, that ain't going to work either. But working with people, listening to them. But what about the suggestion, the concern that, well, if you give in to what they want, aren't you just encouraging them? Oh, I think there are so many problems with that kind of a statement. I, I mean, what does giving in to what they want mean when people are, are you, know, you know, just kind of lashing out in, in anger um, for reasons that are too complicated to even put a name to oftentimes, right? So, um, you know, giving them what they want is just not, just not the... The appropriate frame for for seeing what the problem is in the first place. <laughs> Generally, simplifying things is inaccurate, as uh, <laughs> right. as, as uh, I think it was H. L. Mencken said. Uh, to every complex problem is a simple solution, and it's wrong. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right. you, know, you got to right. pay attention. It's often about hunger, simple things like hunger, uh, and and just you know being able to feed people and clothe people, and people want whatever people want to be. You know, free from hunger, free from disease, free from terrible, you know, poverty. Uh, I, I often tell the story back in 1977, I was in Peru and I went into some small house that most of us would call a hut. And there on the wall was a framed picture of John Kennedy. Now, the reality of his programs, I don't know. But his alliance for progress, paying attention to people, respecting people. There seems to be a great lack of respect for uh, local people and, you know, treating them as equal rather than, you know, as, as what Donald Trump said. Oh, they're all just, you know, blank holes. I just do you see. All right. Here we are. The approaching the 2020 election. It's a big deal. It's, it's a chance to make some real changes. And I hope Democrats don't just be anti-Trump, not Trump. You know that we got to we got to offer other things. And I would hope there would be candidates who would talk about foreign policy. Certainly, uh, uh, what's her name from uh, Tulsi Gabbard is talking about. I don't see too many others. Do you see any members of Congress? You mentioned one, Barbara Lee, I think it is, or candidates for president, picking up the option of, of having, as you describe, another kind of grand plan to deal with the threat of terrorism, both globally and to Americans, one that relies on a far smaller U.S. military footprint and cost far less blood and treasure. So are there any uh, people we can look to and ways we can encourage more discussion about this? Open-ended question. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, at, as a researcher at Brown, I'm not an expert on on the political situation, nor am I, um, you know, that that's just not my role to kind of weigh in yeah. on all that. But what I will say is that there's been there's kind of growing momentum. We we're seeing this in the in the new House of Representatives, um, uh, of kind of like anti-war sentiment. Um, and this is a bipartisan issue. Um, yes, there are lots of people on uh, the the left and the right who yes. who feel like the Pentagon's budget is is Nuts. far too bloated, yes. um, and something needs to be done about that. Um, and I think that as you know, as an American public, we we really need to support anyone and everyone who is 
um, is really debating these issues and not just kind of paying lip service uh-huh. to them in a superficial way, but who who is is asking the public to think about um, you know what why are we waging this war? What are we getting out of it? Is it worth these you know many 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 costs uh, in terms of you know, reducing violence against Americans, reducing violence against civilians. Um, and if not, then what are some more effective ways of dealing with this? I think too often uh, our political leaders are afraid to touch these questions <laughs> yeah. of war and of the military because, you know, the military is thought to be this um, sacrosanct. kind of, right, sacrosanct, and, and, you know, it creates jobs above all. And, yes. and actually our research shows that, um you know, the, the, if you were to invest the same amount of money in other sectors like uh, education or healthcare or energy, um, you're going to create far more jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we, we really need to ask our political leaders to kind of not take these things at face value and to actually ask probing questions um, and, and really hold the government uh, accountable and responsible for waging this war. And it does work. When people's voices are heard, it does make a difference. I imagine some people who are listening might want to find out more about your Costs of War project. What can you tell them about uh, accessing that on that yes. Internet thing? Please check us out online. It's uh, www.costsofwar.org. So costs with an S, costsofwar.org. Uh, and we publish a whole set of papers and figures and things like that. We have an email newsletter um, so we, we really welcome people to, to check out more online. Thank you very much. There is some degree of hope. Thank you so much for yes. being with us, Stephanie Savell. Thank right. you. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. It's kind of out of control, don't you think? <laughs>